It's good to be in worship with you all today. I'm going to go ahead and encourage you to take out your Christ Church notes so you can follow along with me as we dive in uh, to today's topic, which is about holy living. What is it? How do I do it? Where do I even start? But if you know me well, I like movies, so I'm going to start off with talking about a movie. How many of you have seen uh, What About Bob? Right. So, uh, without giving too much away, the beginning of this movie is about this guy, Bob, played by Bill Murray, and he walks into Richard Dreyfuss's office, who's a psychiatrist, and Bob has all these fears and anxieties that he just wants to put out on the table and expects some sort of solution to help him manage his fears. Richard Dreyfuss proceeds to give him one of his own penned books called Baby Steps, and says, these are a few but reasonable goals you can set for yourself in order to navigate these challenges. And in many ways, sometimes we as the church need to reel ourselves in a bit and go back to our baby steps, our roots, our roots in Christ Jesus, our baby steps that help us navigate the next steps of our faith journey. The living hope, friends, that we have in Christ Jesus inspires outcomes. So last week, Pastor Tony talked a lot about what that living hope is that we have in Christ. Today, we're going to talk about what exactly we do with that. How do we take ownership of it, and how do we go and live it out? You know, the good news is something that equips us to act. It motivates us to do something about it. You know, a lot of churches spend a lot of time sitting around tables generating ideas about this kind of stuff, but they never actually do anything with it. But what does it look like when we actually own and treasure the things that we've been given, own it, and act on it? You know, one of the things that Pastor Tony talked about last week is how we, as a people of God, a people of faith, uphold that faith in tension with a changing world, a broken world, a world that is always challenging our perceptions of who God is, challenging our faith, forcing us to kind of wrestle with what is the faithful response as a Christian. Well, today I hope we can come away with some more concrete ideas of just what holy living looks like in our day-to-day life. So let's get this started. So one of the things we've been doing with this series is recognizing that in many ways, the words of 1 Peter could also be written just as uh, recently to us because they're very applicable. They resonate with us. And so each of these times we read through a passage, I'm going to start it with Dear Christ Church. So let's get going. Dear Christ Church, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What First Peter is challenging us to do is not to simply rush into things head first. You know, when we take baby steps in anything, we always have to think carefully and practically about what we are getting into. 
And the thing with Jesus is Jesus never makes something a suggestion. He always expects us to do something with it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, what do I do with that next? Honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Well, how do I do that? So one of the practices that is very close to my heart and my own spiritual growth is Sabbath. We hear about Sabbath throughout Scripture. We're called to observe it. We're called to keep it holy, this day of rest that God teaches us about from the beginning. But it's tempting in this day and age for us to look at Sabbath as an excuse to chill on the couch and binge watch your latest Netflix obsession which is all well and good for your soul when you need a a reprise from your day-to-day activity. But when we think about spiritual disciplines, we're talking about intentional things that we do to invite Christ's presence to dwell in our lives, to permeate through every ounce of our being so that we can glorify that space, that we can set apart that space as a holy one and not one focused on what we want or what we desire. But when we talk about spiritual disciplines, it's easy to think of them as sort of punitive. But discipline is not punitive, it's restorative. These spiritual practices are how we reorient ourselves differently than what we know. And sure, these kinds of things don't happen overnight, we know this. They take practice, they take time. Sabbath is not something that you should treat as another thing to add to your Google Calendar or something that you need to schedule out like you do your chores and your grocery runs. Allow it to be a space that truly is about God meeting you in your place, allowing God's grace to reach out and capture you instead of you defining it on your own terms. One of the things I love about this passage in 1 Peter is it talks about being born anew as an obedient child. Think about yourself as a child. You don't know much, you're taught to love unconditionally, and you're not exposed to the vitriol that we all know very well in our world. There's a certain curiosity about you. There's a certain innocence about you. Going through life, knowing the basic fundamentals of who we're supposed to be. But Peter is not saying that we're supposed to just sit around And let this good news about Jesus being the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus be just a figment in our minds. But he calls us to action. He says, prepare for action. The Greek says, gird up your loins. Get ready for this. Holy living is the consequence of a dynamic faith. Not a faith that's about checking boxes. Not a faith that's static and just lingers up here. It's a faith that motivates us. It's a faith that pushes us, that resonates with us so much that we want to tell somebody about it. We want to do something with it. But now you're probably thinking through the question, well, what does it mean to lead a holy life? What makes somebody holy? How do we define that word, holy? It's a very peculiar word that we like to throw around quite a bit, but do we really know what it means? Some theologians often argue that holy is one of those words that simply eludes human definition. It's not really something we can describe in rational human vocabulary because it's such a set-apart idea. So, 
when we think about holiness, it's first important to think about what we know about God. Holiness has been defined for us already because it is inherent to God. It's a piece of who God is. It's about God's faithfulness. It's about God being love. It's about God's just and righteous way of living in this world and showing us what that looks like. It's about a God who loves unconditionally. And so the question is, how do we embody those things in our lives? What's imperative for us to know is that when we are called to be holy as God is holy, it's not just about imitating or replicating God. For we know that even though we are created in God's image, we're not created to be God. But one way we can look at it is that we are stewards of God's holiness in our relationships, in the way we interact in the world. So how might we be vessels for things like God's faithfulness and commitment to us? How might we posture ourselves in such a way that when others see us, they see the just and righteousness of God? How do we live our lives set apart in a holy way? You know, the Israelites, when they were under Moses' leadership, were told this very same thing too, to be holy as your God is holy. And what 1 Peter is doing that's very interesting is for these new Christians this letter is addressed to, he's saying that this applies just as much to you all too, that you are to live your life in such a way that it reflects the holiness of the God you know and you believe and whom you trust. Which brings us to our next point. Holy living focuses on what's eternal, the things in this life that are eternal. You know, we tend to focus a lot on the things that are right in front of us, the things in the present, the things we can touch, the things we can sense with our senses, the things that we might call perishable. But what's important is that we don't lay everything we know in those things, those things that often satisfy our immediate desires, our immediate wants. You know, anytime we go through life in this way, we have to understand what God calls imperishable versus perishable. And so here's the next part of Peter's letter. Dear Christ Church, if you invoke as Father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him, you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are set on God. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That word is the good news that was announced to you. 
I love this idea of reverent fear. Sometimes we want to think about fear in terms of what we're afraid of, what scares us, what intimidates us. But this is a different kind of fear because when I hear that we are to posture ourselves reverently with fear, the thing I think about is a fear that's rooted in confidence, a confidence that recenters us when perhaps we have lost sight of what's essential and what's important, a fear that reminds us that we are not God and all that we do is with God's help. But as with any fear, there are challenges that you and I must overcome in our daily walk with God. And one of them is this, that when we lead a holy life, we begin reclaiming our relationship with God as covenant, not commodity. Here's an illustration. So there's a phenomenon uh, in the American church that's been around for quite some time. And uh, most pastors uh, refer to it as prosperity theology, in quotation marks. And I say that because this, that it's a movement that suggests that what you gain and what you earn is only based on whether or not your faith is in the right place, or whether or not you have the right kind of faith. And the theological challenge with that is that what it's saying is, if your faith is not in the right place, then something is wrong. So some of the messages that will be preached in this phenomenon are things like, God wants you to have that million-dollar home. God wants you to be blessed, but if your faith is not in the right place, then you're probably not going to get it. Or even worse, God wants to cure you of your cancer, but only when your faith is strong and in the right place. The issue with that is we start commodifying our relationship with God through the things of this world, instead of actually considering the unconditional covenant God makes with us from the very beginning. Think about what the Israelites were doing under Moses' leadership. When Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the message from God, he comes down and, and lays the commandments at his feet because the people have put together a golden calf. They've projected all they think they know about who God is and what God is about into an object, something that satisfies their immediate desires, something that satisfies them right away. But where have we lost sight of the God who loves us in spite of our flaws, in spite of our mistakes, a God whose grace reaches out and touches us even when we aren't ready to receive it ourselves? The second challenge we encounter is this. When we lead a holy life in Christ, we begin entrusting in the promise that death is not the end. We're a people of the resurrection. We're a people who are Easter people. We know that what happens on the cross didn't end there. But how do we arrive at a place where we recognize that although the things in this life will pass, just like the flowers and the grass that Peter speaks of, how can we arrive at a place where we, with confidence, know and trust that we are God's eternally, that we are entrusted into the loving arms of God in spite of the very notion that we one day will pass from this earth? It's beautiful imagery that Peter writes with talking about the way we see things in nature quickly pass 
And yet that promise, that resonating promise that is the hope in Christ is what inspires us to look forward and not stay put. Peter goes on to write the following. Dear Christ Church, rid yourselves therefore of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We live in a culture that it seems recently have become obsessed with the detox. Everybody is after that next best diet. And so by the time you get to one diet, there's probably another one that's already come out. It's, it's a phenomenon out there. And, you know, I even obsess about how many steps I've taken in a day. Uh, with the Fitbit thing, right? But we're so hyper-focused on sort of these things that are about making us feel better, feeling good about ourselves, feeling whole. What I love about this passage we just heard is in many ways, this is kind of the detox we all need to take as we grow and lead more holy lives. And a holy living implies what I call a worldly detox, a worldly detox. What are the things or habits or behaviors in your life right this second that may need trimming? I can look at all the things Peter listed and think, I've probably been complicit in some of those things myself. And so how can I be accountable in casting aside those very things? We all have had times where we've said things to others that we regret or about others in public spheres that we regret, in person, in social media platforms. Or perhaps you know a time in your life where you've put on a mask to convince somebody you were somebody that you were not. And so what detoxing do we need to do in order to live in such a way that is reflective of God? Peter talks about this pure spiritual milk, this goodness that only God can provide. For our nourishment derives from God's goodness and not our innate desire for control or fulfillment. When I hear about this pure spiritual milk, my mind initially went back to the promise told to Moses and Abraham of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land untainted by the things of this life a world or a land that reminds us of God's provision and God's steadfast commitment to God's people. Where do we need to begin longing for that spiritual source again, the thing that builds us up when we live in a world that often is trying to bring us down? You know, there are many churches who are always assessing things based on what's in it for them, how does my involvement in this benefit me? You know, when I tithe or when I participate in a small group or when I just show up for worship, what's in it for me? And what then begins to happen is this culture becomes toxic and we focus less on the outward call to be God's hands and feet and we focus on this inward desire to satisfy the status quo because we've forgotten where our identity truly rests. We start longing for things that give us immediate gratification instead of setting our thoughts and our hearts on what's eternal. 
But in Christ, we have our premier identity. That's the mark of who we are as God's people. Peter writes these words. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Friends, holy living is rooted in this idea of permanency. In other words, the foundation that is the good news of Jesus Christ has already been laid before us. It's the story that's still being written, but our question that you and I must ask each and every day is, where are we caught up in the good news of that story? Where do we find ourselves intersecting with God's story, that foundation, that permanency that is a life in Christ? Peter says that we are like living stones, perfected by the one cornerstone. What does it look like, friends, to be a living stone? Well, here's my thought. A living stone is one who remains firm in Christ, but who is open to the movement of the Holy Spirit. So we're firm like the stone, and yet like a living stone, we are open to what the Holy Spirit will do. We're open to the ways that the Holy Spirit will press us to go to places that we probably wouldn't choose to go if it were not for God's promises. Places like Guatemala, places like Kenya. It's the way the Spirit nudges us to encounter and form relationships with people that we probably wouldn't even want to be friends with. It prompts us to do things like serve communion with people who may vote differently than we do. And it's okay because God's relationship is at the helm God's relationship is at the core of that. It enables us to join a small group where there may be people who are in different spaces of their faith journey, and yet Christ unites them as one. Amen? A spiritual house is formed upon Christ's invitation. You'll notice in this passage It's we who have to let down those walls that prohibit us from being built into that spiritual house that Peter talks about. We have to let down those walls of insecurity, those walls of complacency, the walls of ignorance in order for us to be built up by the perfect cornerstone that is Christ. And so how can we open ourselves up to that new thing? How can we be open to the movement God is doing. Holy living points back to where we belong. Peter writes this, but you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Think about it. Once we were defined by chaos, once we were defined by darkness, we didn't have a place to rest our head. We were left to our own discretions to choose which platforms to follow or what offices to hold. And yet, and yet, here is the good news. We've already been chosen and claimed by God. We are God's beloved in a world that often tells us otherwise. We are God's beloved in a world that often convinces us that we are unloved because of who we are. In a world that convinces us that we are an issue because of something we may happen to struggle with. A world that sometimes tells us that we are unwelcome in a space, and dare I say, sometimes that space is the church. But the good news in this passage is that God chose you. God chose me. God has a claim on each of us. We belong to what Peter calls this holy and royal priesthood. Think about that. This lineage that is solely defined and perfected by God's grace in our lives. And as members of Christ's royal priesthood, we have the hope to live our lives as an outpouring of his grace-filled love. So that when someone looks at you or someone looks at me, they are reminded that God sees them as a beloved child. That God sees them as simply another human being making the baby steps in their faith. That God sees them not as insignificant and not able to respond to the grace that is God's. And so church, how can we lead lives in a holy way to be vessels for God's grace, God's justice and mercy in this world, resting on the fact that even though we can't do these things on our own, it is by God's grace and God's commitment in our lives that we are able to move forward to love God, to love others, and to live out the gospel life. Amen? Amen. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious and holy God, we give you thanks. We offer our gratitude for your provision, your commitment and faithfulness in our lives, knowing that even though this world may pose a stumbling block for us, when we embrace the reality that is your prevenient grace, your grace that reaches out and touches us before we have the chance to say yes, may that be the thing that holds us, the thing that moves us, that motivates us, the thing that inspires us to lead lives worth living, Lives that reflect what you desire for us and not what we desire for ourselves. God, may we leave this place emboldened by your word, by the strength of your spirit, so that we may be broken vessels 
redeemed by your grace and the gift that is resurrection. Amen.